Hey everyone, Paul here. Today's episode is part three in our series on the problem of evil. If you haven't listened to part one and two, I would highly recommend starting there first. Those first two episodes unpack the problem of evil, starting with the scriptures. And today's episode, we're going to start getting into some church history and the perspective of people like church fathers who had lived in the first century and into the second century. But I think it's really important that you understand the uh, ideas contained in the first two episodes. So if you hadn't listened to those, maybe go back and listen and come back and listen to this one after you've gone through those. From the very beginning, followers of this new way of Jesus gathering in what would become known as Christian communities faced very real challenges that seemed to threaten their continued existence. First, there was the Roman authorities and, and the local Jewish puppet government in Palestine. Second, there was the theological threat of what the Apostle Paul sometimes referred to as the, quote, party of circumcision, who was demanding that new Greek, Roman, and other Middle Eastern and Mediterranean non-Jewish followers of Jesus act ethnically Jewish in order to be accepted as true followers of God. We, we see the debates the early church had about this controversy in books like Romans and Galatians as prime examples. Finally, as we approach the end of the first century and the original apostles begin to die out, a new threat emerges, a, a dangerous Molotov cocktail of peculiar theological ideas and, and, and Greco-Roman philosophies that attracted many people still perplexed by the problem of evil. This counter-Christian movement that claimed to be the true message of Christianity is known today as Gnosticism. Most of our remaining writings from this late first century and second century period come from Orthodox Christian leaders addressing either the Gnostic controversy or other ideas that they felt threatened the New Testament Christianity of the original apostolic witness. As we get to know some of these early church fathers and the Gnostic heresies, we can see how some of the earliest Christians outside of the New Testament dealt with the problem of evil. And perhaps these insights can help us better understand and wrestle with the problem of evil. The situation for Christians in the Middle East and throughout the Mediterranean world in that first century and into the second century is actually quite similar to the experience of many Christians living in the Middle East and in other places around the globe today. The problem of evil was no mere abstract philosophical concept. These Christians were, were dying by the droves, being killed and being threatened with death or prison for their pronouncement of faith in Jesus as Lord instead of Caesar as Lord. These Christians also faced the very real threat, as we've mentioned already, of the dissolution of their communities as different competing ideas that seemed quite contrary to the message of the New Testament, the message 
that the apostolic witness proclaimed, a sort of viral movement of what we call Gnosticism today began to emerge late in the first century. And why this is so important to our series is that in our quest to find answers to the problem of evil to help us make sense of suffering in the world, which is possibly at the core, this might be the very core desire of our entire meaning-making system. This might be at the core of all religious traditions is the, the sense in which people are perplexed by their experiences of evil and suffering in the world, and they, they seek an explanation for why life is the way that it is, right? And this is, this is really why we could even, even in the case of, uh, of Judaism, Christianity, and, and even Islam, that we can see the biblical narrative, especially again for Judaism and, and Christianity, that the biblical narrative begins with a story of God's original goodness in creation, and then it goes on to explain why things are messed up. Genesis 2 and 3, in the context of ancient Israel experiencing the, 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 the disenchantment that came with being in Babylonian exile, Genesis 2 and 3 provided a, a sort of meta-narrative explanation. You're in exile for the same reasons Adam and Eve experienced exile from the garden. You strayed away from God's commands, right? This was the problem that Israel experienced as they're in, they're in exile. Why were they in exile? Well, the story that they told was, look at the history of our people. God gave us a covenant. Part of that covenant was that he was going to protect us. And, and now we are in this terrible place. We are now property of another empire. And then they get handed down to another empire and another empire after that. And so, why is this? Well, at least at the core, there is a sense of personal responsibility for one's suffering. But as again, as we talked about in the first episode, that doesn't explain it all, right? Yes, personal agency. If I act a particular way in the world, it brings about a certain result most of the time. If I work hard, if I plant seed and I water the garden, that, that seed is going to grow into the fruit or the tree of the seed that I planted. This is the retribution principle. But the retribution principle doesn't work all the time. And that was part of the wisdom literature tradition of, of books like Job and Ecclesiastes. So here in the first century, the, the, the problem still remains. And now it's for Christians. Christians are now the persecuted people. And, and they're wrestling with why are we experiencing this? And at least on some level, there was a Christian explanation for suffering and a competing explanation for the cause of evil and suffering. And this is why Gnosticism became such a compelling competitor. What is Gnosticism? So if you're not familiar with Gnosticism, it's actually somewhat hard to pinpoint a particular creedal statement for Gnosticism. Again, it was a viral movement in a sense, and it was unorganized. There wasn't one particular Gnostic church. There are many forms of Gnosticism that were popular throughout the 
late first century into the second century and even into the third century, Gnostic religions and philosophies were popular precisely because in spite of having really odd and complicated cosmologies, they offered a clear answer to the problem of evil. That was one of their their primary appeals to people. One such Gnostic sect was Manichaeism. As a young man, a guy by the name of Mani had an encounter or claimed to have an encounter with a spirit who who taught him the truth. This, this spirit was the twin or divine self. Uh, that, that's what he claimed it to be, was his you know, divine self revealed to him the secret knowledge needed for salvation. Following this revelation, Mani claimed to be the paraclete. He claimed to be the advocate, the comforter promised by Jesus. And he, he claimed that he was the last in a line of prophets that included Zoroaster, Plato, the Buddha, and Jesus. In this Manichaean universe, there were two opposing principles. And again, this is just one form of Gnosticism, but most, not, most of these Gnostic philosophies share a, a similar theodicy, okay? So in the, the Manichaean universe, there are two opposing principles. There, there are good and evil. In the beginning, for, for, Manichae, for Manichaeism, the, the, in the beginning, there is a realm of light and a realm of darkness that were separate, and light was the thing that ruled. But at some point, the, the devil happened upon the boundary dividing light and darkness, and he, he found the light compelling, so he decided to conquer it. In response, the, the, the father or, or the, the monad calls upon the, the aeons to combat the devil and his demons. The, the light that had been absorbed and trapped in the evil matter came to form the human soul. And, and so humans are actually, like the rest of the cosmos, a, a dualistic combination of the divine light, which is the good soul, and the evil darkness, which is the material world that, and the material soul that's filled with lust and hate and greed and greed. And so the problem is that light is imprisoned in matter. So the good is imprisoned in the evil material universe and the material self. So the goal, the salvation in Manichaeism is the individual awakening to true gnosis. And this is very typical of most Gnostic systems that focus on individual awakening of transcending material, of the escape of the soul, of the escape of the, the, uh, one's sense of being imprisoned by the material universe. It's very much the first Matrix movie. So, the first Matrix movie is, you know, in a lot of ways, people looked at it as some sort of Christian parable. But in fact, the first Matrix movie has much more in common with more Gnostic versions of Christianity that were popular in the first and second century. And you can kind of see why. I mean, the, the Matrix is a compelling movie. 
it's compelling for many, many reasons, not just the the uh, what was really cool special effects at the time. I haven't watched in a while, so I don't know if they those special effects hold up. But compelling for this sense of that uh, we are imprisoned in this this material world, and, and that maybe helps us feel like it makes sense of evil and suffering. So in these Gnostic traditions, souls remain trapped in matter. And oftentimes they might go through a process even of reincarnation until awakening to the knowledge of truth. And this truth is usually a a secret knowledge, right? And that secret knowledge will eventually bring you and your in your entrapped soul out of its material experience and and return you to the original unity that all creation once had with the monad the 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 singular source of all being ultimate reality to to bring you into union with god now the real danger that gnosticism presented is that it grabbed on many ideas that were actually true for Christians. And yet it, it merged it and synthesized it with other ideas that weren't part of the way of Jesus. But the real appeal here is that it gives you a sense of, well, the problem of evil is because this world is actually the result the material world that I live in is the result of an evil demiurge, an evil God. And so I can sort of rebel against this. And my goal is to try to transcend it and try to escape it and to try to free myself. And in that way, it, 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 as much as the cosmology of it is really, really weird to us, it gives people an existential way of dealing with the problem of evil. It helps them make sense of it. Oh, gosh, that makes sense. The material world is evil. I experience suffering. And again, the amount of suffering that people, I mean, there's terrible suffering that happens today. Don't get me wrong. But in our, in our first world experiences of suffering, they, they, they pale in comparison to what was just a normal reality for many people living in the first century, most of which are in terrible poverty compared to our standards today. So the sense of like, yeah, the material world is suffering. I got to work in the ground all day long and I I've got to you know, I've got to hunt and kill an animal for for the for the food that I need, the meat that I need, need to eat or the fish that I need to catch. It, it seems like at the very core of my daily experience is is evil and suffering and I'm sick and we don't have medicine and child mortality rates are through the roof. So in that sense, it does give people a map for meaning. The question is, is it the right map? And the early church fathers said, no. So let's go through some of them here now. And let's let's see how these church fathers in the first and second century dealt not just with the Gnostic heresy, but they dealt with their own experiences of evil and suffering as they Many of them were martyred and experienced persecution from earthly principalities and powers.
We'll begin with some of the earliest church leaders known outside of the New Testament, and the first of which is Clement of Rome. Clement was the bishop of Rome, probably the second or the third bishop of Rome after the apostle Peter. And there are some varying accounts of who was the, the second or the third, but by, by most accounts, Clement is either probably the second or third, maybe at the very latest, the fourth bishop of Rome, depending on the source. So he, he's, we're talking within a, a generation here of the apostle Peter's life. We don't really know the date of his birth, but we do know that he was bishop of Rome from about 88 to 99 AD. And, and we know that he was martyred during the rule of Emperor Trajan. And Clement was martyred by being tied to an anchor and thrown into the sea. So that's quite the way to go. Again, this is oftentimes a normal feature of the Christian experience. And so the the, the the presence of suffering is, is, is always on your mind, right? I mean, this, this is the end of, of, of the bishop of Rome's life, right? Um, a godly man, a Christian leader. Clement, his approach to the problem of evil was dictated by two factors. First, Clement was very much in a Platonist Christian heritage, Platonism was the one of the predominant philosophical schools of thought in the Greco-Roman world. And, and being a bishop of Rome, he would be just as familiar with Platonist thought as Americans would be of capitalism and apple pie and baseball, right? This is, this is just kind of part of the worldview that Clement is operating in. And the second factor that influences Clement's writings on the problem of evil is the Gnostic crisis, this crisis of these rivaling Gnostic religions and philosophies. Philosophies, And again, these are very dualist philosophies. The material world is the creation of a lower, ignorant, and evil deity. Mankind is the subject to unchanging fate. And humanity is involuntarily in the world because of what Charlene P.E. Burns calls a pre-cosmic faux pas. <laughs> um, and they can only be saved from the world if they had the divine spark in them and then they get that divine spark released from their material frame. And obviously, as many people and scholars have noted, there is a Platonist influence in Gnosticism. And yet we can see that Clement, even though he is living very much within a Platonist worldview that was very common to someone living in Rome in that time, we also see how Clement has the ability to do some good theology of culture and, and recognize features of that worldview that were not in keeping with the way of Jesus. Clement makes it really clear the material world is not evil. Everything that God created is good, and evil is, in a sense, a, a deficiency of being. It's a, it's a parasite on God's good creation. Humans truly have free will, and evil is the result of 
moral agents refusing the good and choosing evil. So for Clement, it's not that evil is the result of some sort of some sort of lesser evil deity that's brought about the the material world. No, the material world and all of creation is the result of God's goodness. And yet evil is a real feature because evil is the misuse of the will, the human will, and even the angelic will, the will of any moral agent. It's the misuse of the will to direct the will against the good. Clement gives really no ultimate explanation for why this parasite exists or or, or why God chose to grant the ability for moral agents to misuse their will. But he gives the hope that, that evil is ultimately overcome by Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection. As W.E.G. Floyd puts it in his work on Clement and Clement's theodicy, Clement's theodicy does not offer a solution to the problem of evil so much as a rationale for understanding it. Our next early church leader is Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius lived from 35 AD to either 108 or to 140 AD. I know that's a big variance, but there are two differing accounts of when uh, Ignatius was, was martyred. Ignatius was a disciple of John. Yes, the John of the New Testament. This is how close to the time of the New Testament we are talking about. And this is, as a side note, one of the reasons why it's so important that we study early church history. Yes, all of church history, but we, we do want to return to the earliest sources because these are people, in, as in the case of people like Ignatius, and as we're going to see later with Polycarp, these are, these are people that were actually discipled by the apostles. We're, we're talking about within one generation of their life. And so what they believe is probably in many cases a good indication of what the authors of the New Testament likely believed. It, it, it's not settled. It's not a matter of fact. But at least it's a really good clue. It's a, it's a likely candidate for, boy, what did, you know, what did John himself believe about this issue? There's the possibility these guys could come to their own conclusions, and we do want to recognize that. So uh, we shouldn't put Ignatius on par with John's writings in the New Testament. I'm not suggesting that. But if we want to seek to understand the New Testament in a way that's like, yeah, I want to be faithful to the apostolic witness, starting with these patristics, these early church fathers, is a great place to begin. So, all right, back off the... The side note, bunny trail back kind of the main trail. So Ignatius was a, a disciple of John. He was Bishop of Antioch. And the way he died was an, another lovely way. <laughs> he, was, he was thrown to the lions. And it's, it's possible that that even happened in the Roman Colosseum. So we don't know this for certain, but there are some accounts that, uh, that, that, that say that that was the way Ignatius died. So it's largely agreed that Ignatius wrote seven letters or epistles, which, which give us some of the earliest insights out of the New Testament into what Christians may have believed about the problem of evil. For Ignatius, the devil was the, quote, 
prince of this world. A very familiar phrase. We talked about that in the previous episode, in episode, uh, in part two, episode 42, I believe. We talked about how the New Testament authors use phrases that are not found in the Old Testament to describe the devil or Satan. In fact, there's very few scant references to Satan at all. You'll have to review that episode for more full explanation. But Ignatius just keeps carrying on that, that tradition. The devil is the prince of this world. And, and he warns that Christians should, quote, not be anointed with the bad odor of the devil's doctrine. I love that. Like, in essence, the devil's doctrine stinks. So don't let yourself get stinky. For Ignatius, it's the devil, it's Satan who causes disobedience. He disrupts community. He causes people to lose their faith, to fall for heresy, and to even blaspheme. But for Ignatius, Christians need not fear because Christ gave himself as a, and this is a word that's maybe kind of strange to some of us today, but Christ gave himself as a ransom to the devil to set us free. A ransom, that's such a peculiar phrase, and it's one that's repeated by, by later church fathers. And it's, in essence, the primary way that these early church fathers thought about Christ's work on the cross. And we'll explain more about that in another time. The next church father living in the first century, we really only have three that we can confirm as of today that we have authentic writings from in the first century outside of the New Testament. The third is Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp lived in 88, or was born in 88 AD and lived all the way till 156 AD. How did he go? You're probably curious after hearing the first, the way the first two men were killed. He was killed by a spear, so he was run through. What was his sin, his offense? He would not offer incense to the Roman emperor. He would not bow his knee to the Roman emperor very much in keeping with the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. He would not bow. He would not worship. Offering incense was a an act of worship and allegiance to the Roman emperor. And Polycarp was like, no way, man. Polycarp was uh, likely another disciple of John. And uh, he's just got this, this legendary quote. Uh, this is, you know, such an important, important quote as people reflect on martyrs throughout church history. I, I love this one because this gives you a, a sense and an insight into how Polycarp thought about his own experience of suffering and his own experience of, of, of being martyred. Before he was martyred, before he was killed and executed, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. When it came to experiencing the moral evils that were inflicted upon Christians as the result of government persecution. This was a common attitude. This was a common attitude among the early church that they were somehow, in some way, participating in Christ's suffering. Just as Christ was, Christ was crucified by Roman powers and their 
co-conspirators and the, the puppet government of the, the Jewish Sanhedrin. These Christians in the first century and into the second century, and as we know from church history, well into the fourth century, who were experiencing similar acts of violence towards themselves, they saw what they were participating in as participating in the the very sufferings of Christ. It was one of the things that motivated them and motivated them to continue to be faithful to the witness of Jesus, even unto death. It's incredible. It's such a, perhaps a different perspective than we might have. And I'll go into more detail in another episode about this, but just as a a brief aside, one, one possible way that we could understand evil and suffering, especially those acts of evil that are perpetuated on the righteous, is that we can see in the life of Christ that righteous people suffer. It's, it's part of the message of Job, that righteous people suffer, and it's not because of the retribution principle. In fact, it only reveals that the retribution principle doesn't run the universe. Again, refer back to part one for a more detailed explanation of this. But Christ is not receiving what he deserved. Polycarp is not receiving what he deserved. Ignatius and Clement, they're not receiving what they deserve. These are people that have lived righteously in the world. And the moral evils inflicted on them is not punishment for their sin. And yet, in some way, they they are participating in what Christ has participated in. And it's the the revealing of that karma is not king. The retribution principle is not king. Perhaps maybe one of the costs of having a, a world in which mercy and forgiveness is possible, having a world in which bad people don't get what they deserve, perhaps one of the side effects is that in this universe, good people don't get what they deserve. If there's going to be mercy extended towards the prisoner on the cross, perhaps the truly righteous one has to get what the prisoner deserves. Well, we're not at the conclusion of the series yet, so I'm going to save that that explanation and ruminating on that some more for another time. But I think it's important to to think about that in in light of just this, this wonderful... Wonderful exclamation from Polycarp. Again, I bless you, Father, from judge, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Polycarp does not say much about the problem of evil. He, he does not write much about it. In fact, we don't have much from Polycarp. We have testimonies about Polycarp written after his life, but we don't have much from Polycarp about the problem of evil. But what, here's what we do have. Polycarp Polycarp warns that uh, false teaching and those that reject the cross, the the Gnostic heresies, the the other heresies that are emerging in the the later later portion of the first century and into the second century, that those are actually false teachings 
that are from the devil. He specifically links heresy, false teaching, deceptions with the devil. And he warns, quote, that these sort of false and destructive ideologies, that those who believe them and, and teach them, he says that the one that does this, those that do this, the one that would teach these false doctrines, quote, perverts the oracles of the Lord to his own lusts. And he goes on later to say that denying the resurrection and the judgment, those that do that are, quote, the firstborn of Satan. Strong words, but again, the point here is to link that deception originates in Satan and people are in keeping with what Clement has already Clement has already laid out that that those who follow in Satan's allegiance are misusing their will. Polycarp encourages believers, though, that all things in heaven and earth are subject to Christ, and he will one day come to judge the living and the dead. There will be a judgment on Satan, and there will be a judgment on those who have given their allegiance to Satan. As we move into the second century, Christianity has continued to spread throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the Mediterranean world, despite the persecution and even, maybe it's not even best to say despite, but perhaps even promoted through the persecution of Christians and their faithful witness. As the Christian message begins to spread, there are noted apologists who seek to give a theological and and, and philosophical defense of this seemingly new religion to people within the Roman Empire, elites and people of prominence, in order to defend the fact that Christianity is not a threat. It's not a religion that people should be suspicious of. And one of the best and perhaps most important defenders of Christianity in the second century was Justin Martyr. As Justin sought to give a theological and philosophical defense of the new Christian religion, we can find in Justin's writings insights into Justin's theodicy. We can find insights into What did he think is the cause of evil and and suffering in the world? For Justin, Satan was, quote, the prince of the wicked spirits who God allowed to sow evil and suffering in the world for now. These wicked spirits were fallen angels who were assigned by God the task of caring for creation and humanity, but rebelled against that assignment Justin's explanation for the the rebellion of these angels and the the creation of demons actually sounds very much like our explanation that we find in Enoch and Jubilees, which we covered in part two of our series. Justin believed that these angels became, quote, captivated by love of women and begat children, who are those that are called demons, end quote. Justin was very much in line with his times, and he believed that demons were the offspring of the watchers, the angels, and and, and human women. 
This is a very, very strange idea to us. And even for those of us that have grown up in the church, even many people that have gone to seminary, I I don't think I had a single lecture in seminary about uh, you know, the watchers and the you know, the book of Enoch and any of this stuff. You know, so these these ideas when we hear them from early Christian fathers like Justin can be like, dude, what are you talking about? But it, it, it was very obvious. It's obvious from the New Testament. It's obvious that this intertestamental literature played a significant role in shaping the sort of cosmology and worldview of people in the first and already into the second century. We do, though, see perhaps uh, a significant gap, though, in explanations like this in, in centuries that follow. And it's only been recently, again, as we talked about in previous episodes, it's only been recently when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered that uh, theologians today have now become more aware of these explanations for the fall of angels found in the intertestamental literature. For Justin, it was the, the demons. It's demons who are responsible for influencing heresies like Gnosticism and Marcionism. And and we need to talk about Marcionism because Marcionism is not exactly, you could lump it in the Gnostic category as a Gnostic religion in some way, but it's different and it's very important in our discussion of the problem of evil. At least one reason why understanding Marcionism is important for us today is because Many of us, and just simply reading the Old Testament and New Testament, if we were to read it cover to cover, we might be tempted in some ways to think of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as two different gods. We might be tempted to think of the problem of evil and to understand the problem of evil in a Marcionite framework. This is a very easy thing for us to do. And you know, as we look at Marcionism and we look at the teachings of Marcion, you know, I don't think it's anything that we should go and be like, dude, how could he ever think that? I just think it's important for us to see that the early church uh, acknowledged Marcion's teaching as heretical and they defended a much more complex view, a nuanced view that in some ways is like like it was with Gnosticism. Now, you know, Marcionism might just be an easier pill to swallow. It helped. It certainly felt like it helped a lot of people make sense, or at least what they thought was making sense of these differences that we've already acknowledged between presentations of who is the secondary cause of evil and suffering, between then the differences between the Old and the New Testament. People saw it as a helpful explanation. And so we need to acknowledge that this, is, this was a real force. It was a force that the church had to address. So Marcionism emerges out of the teachings of Marcion in the second century. Marcion believed that Jesus was Savior and that he was sent by God and that the apostle Paul was the the, the, the chief apostle, that, that Paul, Pauline theology presented the best way of understanding God. And, you know, I, in many ways, uh, there's nothing to disagree with perhaps that statement. The apostle Paul might actually be the, the best expositor of New Testament theology. 
But once you understand what Marcion means by this, you're going you're gonna to see the problems with his particular emphasis. Marcion acknowledged Jesus as Savior sent by God. He acknowledged the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul. But Marcion rejected the Hebrew Bible because in the Hebrew Bible, he saw a picture of a wrathful Hebrew God who he considered the only way I can make sense of this God that I see in the Old Testament is to, to, to just simply say, he's not the real God. He is a, a separate, a lower entity, an evil demiurge and not the same as this God of the New Testament who seems merciful and forgiving. So Marcionism is similar to Gnosticism in that there is a demiurge, an evil demiurge that is responsible for things in creation. But it is, it is different than other Gnosticisms in that Marcion isn't necessarily approaching this, approaching the scriptures with the typical Gnostic assumptions. So Marcion was actually the son of a bishop. So he approaches this really as a problem with trying to make sense of the Bible. And in some ways, guys, I just think we should be sympathetic to the, the problem, the wrestling that Marcion goes through. And, and Marcion as the son of a bishop, someone raised with the Christian narrative and is trying to make sense of it, we can see where he's got these questions. And I I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, he, we don't want to turn these, these people into, um, to, you know, just caricatures that are easy, easy to assign as, uh, you know, these are the bad guys in the story. Yeah. We disagree. The church disagrees with Marcion or Orthodox Christian teaching counters Marcion calls Marcionism a heresy. Like, you know, those are very, very strong words. But I think it's all right for us to go and acknowledge and be honest with ourselves. We go, yeah, I can kind of see what Marcion was wrestling with. We've brought this thing up already in, in the, the previous episode. So Marcion actually, in an effort to try to make sense of the discrepancies that he saw in the way that God, God acted in the Old Testament with his behavior in the New Testament, came up with his own canon and it consisted of 11 books. There were uh, a gospel, the gospel of Marcion. So he kind of took 10 sections from the gospel of Luke uh, and, and put together his own composite gospel. He uh, put 10 of Paul's epistles in his canon. And then Marcion just flat out dumped the entire Old Testament. Yes, he just like, no, this isn't this isn't part of scripture. This should not be scripture, and um, and whatever else remains, you know, out of the twenty seven books in the New Testament that weren't part of the Pauline epistles and weren't part of these select sections from the Gospel of Luke, and uh, he made his own canon. And one of the good things that comes about from this is that. Uh, while there was loosely already a canon of scripture, it, it hadn't been finalized. It hadn't been, you know, here's the universally accepted canon. There was already by the second century a general consensus of this is, but, you know, one of the things that Marcion did in creating his counterfeit canon was it did push the church to think about, well, we really, really, really need to name, 
here, what are the things that we're receiving as inspired by the Spirit and what isn't? Like Gnosticism, Marcionism was an extreme dualism. Marcion taught aloud what many people secretly wonder when they read the Old and New Testament. Is the Old Testament God and the New Testament God actually different gods? The way that he interpreted Paul's writings was to say, see, Paul makes this really clear division between law and gospel. He, he would take a book like Galatians and say, see, see, Paul says, right? Paul points here to the law being like, a, you know, a, 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 a temporary master until we were able to receive the, the full revelation of God in Christ. And he spins that to say the God of the Old Testament was not actually the true God. Question he asks is an important question. Is the God that we see in the Old Testament and the God that we see in the New Testament actually different gods? To that question, people like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, contemporaries of Marcion living in the second and the third century answer with a resounding no. Whatever challenges these apparent differences between Old and New Testament present, they must be reconciled. For Justin Martyr, Evil is not just the result of a competing or rival deity. The possibility of evil seems to just be a feature of creation and a contingency of God giving moral agents freedom of the will. This is not some rival God. This is not, we don't have two different gods. There's no lesser, lesser demiurge. The the lies of the Gnostics and the lies of Marcionism are that. They are lies. There is no rival deity, but evil is of just a very real feature. It is, a, it is a real feature of having a creation that is separate from a creator and a creation in which freedom of the will is possible. Justin doesn't give a detailed explanation of why this has to be an allowed feature within creation. He does, though, give a much more attentive response to what he sees as the Christian hope for the eventual end of all evil and suffering, and an explanation for why God delays in bringing this end about. Quote, that Satan would be sent into the fire with his host and the the men who follow him and would be punished for an endless duration. The reason why God has delayed to do this is his regard for the human race. For he foreknows that some are to be saved by repentance, some even that are perhaps not yet born. In the beginning, he made the human race with the power of thought and choosing the truth and doing right, so that all men are without excuse before God, for they have been born rational and contemplative. End quote. This doesn't solve the challenges that we see when we attempt to grapple with these pictures of, of, of God's character and nature in the Old Testament and New Testament. But Justin affirms that the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the, these are the acts of one God, 
And there is one God above all, and this God has created a creation that has the capacity for evil. But yet, while he's given creation this capacity, it is a temporary capacity, is a temporary capacity for the will to move away from the good. And there will be a time in which in which there will be no more evil. There will be a judgment on all moral agents who have used their will to move away from the good. This is the hope. This is the hope that it will not always be like this. But what about other Christian voices from this time period? Again, we don't have many, but one of the other most important ones from the second century is a man by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus lived from 135 to 202 AD. For Irenaeus, the devil was a creature made by God. He was a good angel who became apostate. Irenaeus had a very unique idea, though, about humans. And for Irenaeus, humans were not made perfect, but they weren't inherently evil either. Creation was good. Good. All of creation was created as good, even humans. But humans were created like, quote, like children. These childlike attributes in humanity, God has had a specific purpose. And the specific purpose God had was to grow humanity into the image of God. And this is a central feature of Irenaeus' theology. At the beginning, quote, man was but small, for he was a child, and it was necessary that he should grow, and so come to his perfection. But man was a child, not yet having his understanding perfected, wherefore also he was easily led astray by the deceiver, end quote. Irenaeus makes the connection between Satan and the serpent in the garden and, and says that the God did not curse Adam and Eve as a judgment on the fall, but God curses the ground and Satan and and believes that it was at that point that Satan was actually cast out of heaven. Now, we we can't say this for certain, but it's just an interesting perspective from Irenaeus. So, how do humans then grow into God's intended perfection and triumph over Satan and evil? So, again, we have a clear, just as we've had with Justin Martyr, just as we've had with uh, Polycarp, Ignatius, Clements, there is a dualism that's consistent with the New Testament. We're already here into the second century, and this, this seems quite consistent with the New Testament, a sort of dualism. It's a dualism that isn't as extreme as the Gnostic dualism. It's not as extreme as the, the Marcionite dualism, but yet there is a dualism that's in keeping with the New Testament. Irenaeus considers Satan to be the causal agent behind humanity's deceptions, behind evil and suffering in the world. And like his predecessors, Irenaeus doesn't really give an explanation for why God chose to make a world where this is possible. He's more focused on encouraging people to have a way to live in the world that is comprised of evil and comprised of temptation and suffering. So what is the hope that Irenaeus presents? The hope for humanity is that humans can actually grow into, humanity can grow into God's intended perfection for them and 
triumph over Satan and evil. Well, how would humanity achieve this? It's through a process called recapitulation. And this is central to Irenaeus' theology. In Irenaeus' recapitulation theology, Jesus is not only true God, but Irenaeus affirms the historic Christian witness already that Jesus is also, also true man. And as true man, Jesus corrects the sins of the primordial human Adam. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, he resists. Where humanity has failed, Jesus succeeds. As Irenaeus writes in his Against Heresies, quote, He is therefore, in his work of recapitulation, summed up all things, both waging war against our enemy and crushing him who had, who had at the very beginning led us away as captives in Adam and trampled upon his head, end quote. Adam is a captive of Satan. Satan is the one who has led humanity away, right? Christ's work then is to wage war against the common enemy and to crush him, to, to trample upon his head. There is a dualism here that's very different from the monistic, more monistic theodicy that we might say is present in Judaism at this time. This is a unique feature of Christian theodicy. And yet it does not go as far as the extreme dualisms of Gnosticism and Marcionism. In Jesus's death, Christ becomes a ransom to the devil. Again, that ransom language is a common feature of patristic theology. It's a common feature of what we might say is patristic language about the atonement and the cross. Jesus becomes a ransom to the devil to release humanity from his dominion. Humans then become participants in Christ's work and free from the dominion of Satan in baptism. Irenaeus, like Justin, teaches that Satan's dominion is only allowed by God for a temporary time. And although it's clear that Irenaeus believes in things like demonic possession, even going as far as to encourage people in their baptismal confession to specifically renounce the devil in his ways and his works, Satan cannot override human will. He can tempt, he can try to lead astray, but our own will is the determinant in whether we will be led astray. And the consequences, if left unrepentant, are ours as well. It's clear from the first and second century fathers that early Christianity was not as monistic in its theodicy as Judaism. And yet, simultaneously, it's not as dualistic as the Gnostic and Marcionite heresies. Satan is very much a moral agent, a, a fallen angel, the prince of this world, who can very much deceive, bring afflictions, and tempt people toward evil, and even motivate the persecution of the church. And yet, his power is never a rival to God. The material world isn't evil. The goal isn't to escape it. The Old and New Testament are a cohesive story with the same God. 
God has created a world where evil is the result of moral agents who will against the good. Admittedly, these early fathers are much more concerned about moral evils that affect Christians than they are about philosophizing the why behind natural evils. And maybe that's why Gnosticism was such a fierce and deceptive competitor. The Gnostics had an easier answer to the the problem of natural evil. Matter and the world is fundamentally evil. When you escape it, you'll be free from that evil. You'll be free from those demiurges. Right? In a lot of ways, it is an easier answer. And yet, the Christian message, consistent with the New Testament that we see present in the first and into the second century, denies escapism. God was going to redeem creation, bring judgment on all evil, and resurrect the righteous to inherit the world they partnered with God in redeeming. Well, that concludes today's episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got a lot out of this. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. I always provide a link for that in the description. You can leave a comment or leave some feedback in the review section if you want to do that on Apple Podcasts or wherever wherever you listen to podcasts at. Um, I always enjoy when people reach out to me with follow-up questions or a different perspective. So please do so. I want this to be a dialogue together. I want to thank those of you that have been supporting this podcast via Patreon. Um, You know, hopefully you can tell there's a lot of research that goes into this and many of the stuff, honestly, was much of the stuff I should say is um, stuff that, you know, might not even get covered in, in seminary classes if you were to go to seminary. So I really consider this to be a you know, without getting tests and assessments and having homework that in many ways, this is like a, a free, a free college, uh, free graduate level, free seminary level class. And so, um, thank you guys for those of you that are considering this worth supporting. If you want to be involved and there are some perks and unique features for those that get involved on Patreon, you can find that in the link to the description. I want to thank Specifically, people like Paul and Sam, Elizabeth, Micah, those of you that have been supporting consistently. Thank you for your support. I can't do it without you guys. Finally, I'd invite you, if you do find this podcast to be helpful and meaningful to your life, would you consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts? Um, Give it whatever stars you think it deserves. And if you had a write-up so that you could help people who might be searching for a podcast like this that can help them deal with the intersection of theology and all their meaning-making endeavors. So I want to thank you guys for that. Um, We will have some bonus content coming up here from my uh, live event that I'm doing at Hope Community in Corcoran, Minnesota, this upcoming weekend on October 27th. By the time you listen to this, the event will already have uh, passed, but I will be sharing the recording of that for people in the Patreon community. So Thank you again, guys. Uh, Until next time, look forward to talking with all of you.